This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Stewart, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today we are joined by our Chairman and CEO, Lloyd Blankfein, who will share his thoughts on a variety of topics, including the state of the firm, growth markets, disruptive technology, and the global economy. Lloyd, thank you for being here. Well, thank you, Jake. Last week, you traveled to California to attend a tech conference hosted by our investment banking division. This month, you're also bringing the board of directors to San Francisco as part of the firm's annual meeting. Why are you spending so much time out there? Why does uh, California matter so much to Goldman Sachs? Well, we help finance growth and we source it and we like to think we contribute to it. And one of the places that are growing the most new businesses are in the area of technology, and that's you know the major, a major, not the only one, but a major locus of that technology and innovation is in uh, Silicon Valley and its environs. So if you want to be relevant and influential in that part, and you want to make a contribution, uh, you better spend a lot of time there, and we do. And so we have a lot of events there. We try to convene groups and draw in our clients, who are very often the CEO of and, and the creators and innovators behind these new technologies. And I think it helps us if we bring other parts of Goldman Sachs to it, including our own board of directors, so they can see what's up and they can get a good assessment of what we're trying to accomplish. Not the first time you've taken the board out there, either. No, it's not, and I doubt it'll be the last time. It's very important that they see this firsthand. And by the way, there's no redundancy in this. You can go get a full treatment, mark to market all these new initiatives, come back six months later, and you feel it's like changed. You're, and it's yeah. changed a lot. In some cases, you feel like you're starting over. So at the conference you were at last week, what kind of themes were you hearing from the CEOs and the, and the innovators there? Where, where does it feel like it is in the cycle of this particular technology boom? Well, I'll tell you, I think this cycle has been going on for a while, but I can't tell you it's near the end of it. There's, there's a lot of new companies that are growing. There's nervousness, of course, that we're at the end of the cycle. Don't forget, it relates to the macro environment, too, where interest rates are so low. There's a lot of liquidity. There's a lot of money. So there's funding rounds that are happening at very high valuations, and so there's nervousness about that. But whether the valuations are too high, you'd really know that in retrospect. I'm not sure that they are, because when you look what's being accomplished and the value that's being created and the disruptions that are occurring, it's quite sensational. So I'll let, I'll let you know later, looking back, as to whether, as to whether this is, whether it's gone, whether it's gone too far. In retrospect, some of the IPOs in '99 look actually attractively priced today. Um, well, so. you know, you can go out and you can be kind of, you can be kind of smug, uh, on a look back basis of what you recall you thought or didn't think about something. But I'll tell you, it's a curse. But I don't have amnesia. I remember in the run-up to the what we now refer back to as the tech bubble, we, we thought that, my goodness, shouldn't an online bookseller, isn't this spectacular, shouldn't have a high valuation. You get a disruption of the tech, all of a sudden an interruption. You get a piercing of the so-called bubble. And a lot of people stand around and say, my goodness, what was I thinking? Barnes & Nobles has stores, stores and a history and a franchise in addition to the capacity to go online if they need to. Why shouldn't that be much more valuable? What was I thinking? And here, turn the clock forward another dozen years and look at the success and the, and the reach and the importance of, uh, and the influence of Amazon. Yeah. So bringing it closer to home, how do you see technology changing 
Goldman Sachs and, and the financial services industry. We recently announced we're bringing in a, a business person from one of the major card companies to look at an online lending platform here at Goldman. How might we see technology continue to reshape our in, own industry? You know, it's very kind. When you ask about technology in our own industry, I'd like to point out that uh, you know we're obviously a key player within our industry, and you know we have something like 35,000 people in the firm. Something over 9,000 of them are in technology. So when you ask me how is technology, dis you know, what might dis technology be doing to disrupt the industry or our company? I mean, it's it's a little bit of a funny sentence because we are a technology company. So We're disrupting technology, ourselves. Technology, well, not so much disrupting it, yeah. uh, which of course everybody does to some extent, but technology is a core competence of ours. I'm going to rework your question and say, how is technology affecting the way we do our business all the time and other entrants to the business? And so you could see there's a lot of new companies forming around payments, around forming algorithms to create prices and valuations, new modes and platforms distributing the product, which very often includes pricing information. Very often pricing is the uh, product uh, that you're distributing. Things get done faster. Things are done with more leverage. And then there are things that are being done. So for example, things are structured that couldn't be done any way but through technology. In other words, the speed doesn't just make things faster and the efficiency doesn't make things just cheaper, it actually allows you to do things that you otherwise wouldn't be able to do. And that's, by the way, happening now, but by the way, it's been happening all along. Now, I'll tell you something interesting else about our industry, that all industries are being disrupted to some extent by new entrants coming in from technology. We, again, being you know, technology-oriented ourselves, try to disrupt ourselves and try to figure out what's the new thing and come up with new platforms, new forms of distribution, new products. But in some ways, and there are some parts of our business where it's very hard for outside entrants to come in and disrupt our business simply because we're so regulated. You'll hear people in our industry talk about the regulation and they talk about it you know, with a sigh, look at the burdens of regulation. But in some cases, the burdensome regulation acts as a bit of a moat around our business. I'm not saying that that's intended. I'm not saying it's good for the industry. I'm not saying that's something that we even like. I'm just reporting to you that there are parts of our business that in order to be in it, you have to be a regulated entity and be a bank holding company and take on certain burdens that go with that. And a lot of people it's are not unwilling, for everyone. A lot of people right. are unwilling to do that. Yeah. Um, another area where Goldman has traditionally sought growth has been in emerging markets. Some of them not so emerging anymore, some of them well-established. You, you were just in South Africa, met with uh, leaders of the country, mm -hmm. leaders of industry. How would you characterize progress in South Africa 20 years after uh, they had their own revolution? More than 20 or 25 years ago, you tried to suggest a band of reasonable expectations of where South Africa would be 25 years forward, in other words, to where we are today. And we are well through the high side of that band. Now, having said that, we've lived through these last 25 years. Our expectations have been allowed to grow. And I'd say there are aspects of South Africa that are disappointing to some people. So, for example, in my visit there uh, a few weeks ago, you, you have rolling scheduled times when the, uh, when the lights go out, when the electricity gets shut off. I mean, South Africa, you understand, has many of the characteristics of a highly developed country. It's one of the biggest equity markets in the world, capital markets, real global companies that succeed on an international basis uh, that have you know, quite developed. 
relatively high GDP, certainly for the African continent. At the same time, it's an emerging market. And some of the problems that South Africa has are problems that we all have in the world. So, for example, as you know, when rates rise in the U.S., what do they do to South Africa's ability to attract capital? Because once U.S. rates start to go up, U.S. attracts capital. It tends to choke off emerging markets and issues like that that are common to other mar uh, emerging markets. But then there's also special aspects of the South African context that are specific to South Africa and their history. So, for example, the need of the government to create a political environment where the people who historically have created and owned a lot of the and owned and controlled the great wealth of the country, nobody wanted to spook that segment of the population into leaving the country. At the same time, it wouldn't be true to the principles of the great changes that took place in South Africa if we didn't achieve a certain amount of redistribution. So, South Africa is an interesting place now. The great advantage of South Africa is that it's on the African continent. From a low base, the rest of the continent is enjoying a lot of growth. And so you think that as a more developed country within the African continent, South Africa should be a portal to that extra growth. Shifting uh, continents, you're yep. heading to China next month. You go there regularly and have often said that this will be China's century. What do you think about the immediate challenges facing the leadership of that country and the business community there? Well, this has the, certainly has the potential to be China's century because China is very much on trend to soon being the largest economy in the world. That doesn't make it necessarily the wealthiest country in the world because it has so many more people. So again, you have something like three or four times the population of the United States. It should have a bigger economy and it shortly will. But still, a lot of challenges and a lot of problems owing to the population and the relatively low state of the development of their markets and the immaturity of a lot of their industries and a lot of work to do. And still, a lot of, of the population is in, uh, is in poverty. China has accomplished great things in the last couple of generations. And even though great things have been accomplished, they've created even higher expectations. I'd say that over the last few decades, China has stressed growth. They needed to have growth. They needed to be able to provide jobs for people coming in from the countryside, from the villages into the city. You need that migration to take place because that's how per capita wealth gets generated by having people come to the cities and generate revenue for industry to give people a higher standard of living in the cities that it would otherwise have in the countryside. And by the way, in a country that doesn't have a lot of accumulated wealth, in order to generate that industry, you create things for export, which is what they did. That business model can only last so far. So what they've done is they've created an economy heavily dependent on exports, an economy in which growth was exalted over other considerations. And in order to achieve growth, they were perhaps a little bit reckless with the environment. In other words, if you are pursuing headlong growth, maybe you're a little bit reckless about where you locate your power facilities, whether you take care of environmental issues, sources where you, of energy, sources of energy, how you get rid of uh, you know, waste, because it's growth, 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 growth. You have to curb growth if you want to take into account other things like uh, you know, the quality of the air and the quality of the environment and other kinds of health issues. So they have to deal with that corruption of the environment. The other thing that they have to deal, and they're quite upfront about this, 
is they have to deal with another kind of corruption, the corruption of certain officials within the political system. Uh, and I think this is known. When you're spending money very quickly and you're trying to stimulate growth at any cost, and in some cases, you're being careless about the nature of the growth and what you're stimulating and not necessarily auditing things as, you know, as meticulously as you would because, after all, you really, the, the number one priority is to grow quickly. There has been some corruption uh, within China, and they're trying to staunch that. And so in order to fix these things, create more consumer demand, protect the environment to deal with the corruption issue, you're going to have to slow down growth from a headlong surge for growth into something that's more sustainable in the long run, so accept a lower growth rate. That's a very tough set of maneuvers to accomplish, and they're involved in those maneuvers right now. There's very capable leadership in China. I'm confident that they'll accomplish that, but it won't be frictionless. They're also changing the way they're financing growth, and that's a place where Goldman would like to play a bigger role. There's been some liberalization of the equity markets, the establishment of the Shanghai, Hong Kong, Stock Connect. Sure. Um, are they at the point where they, that's essential to the forward path on growth, that they liberalize the capital markets in I think, China? I think there has to be economic liberalization and marketplace liberalization uh, for a number of reasons. First, the markets allocate capital. And so you can make centralized decisions, but how do you know those decisions? You know, the best decision maker in some ways is the market. And so if you don't have ways of allocating capital, how do you do it? There's a lot of state-owned enterprises. State-owned enterprises compete for capital with, some cases, the more innovative private sector. But again, the state-owned enterprises have an access to state financing. And in some cases, decision makers are deciding as opposed to letting the market, who'd bid more for the capital, who'd be more successful, who'd earn more money off that capital, whose products are being sought after or wanted. And so you're getting some misallocations of capital uh, without a, a market system uh, to allocate it. Another thing that the capital markets do quite well is they ensure that you have to write off your mistakes quickly because the financing mechanism, being able to get financing something, is part of the decision-making process of whether that would be capital. People think that's capital well spent. But let's say you build a road, you build an airport, you build a, a, a warehouse, you build a stadium, and if it turns out to be in the wrong place, no one shows or someone up. doesn't, people don't show up. If they don't show up, they don't pay fees. If they don't pay fees, the entity that built that, that job can't pay its debt service. And what happens then? In a commercial economy, the banks come in, they take possession of it, they try to run it differently, they give it to someone else, they sell it to someone else who can run it, and ultimately, if it can't be accomplished, they plow it over, start up again, and you build something else there. And it's wiped off the balance sheet. Next, it's recycled and put to another use. And that's what the, uh, that's what the capitalist system is also very good at. Makes you recognize and write off your mistakes more quickly than you otherwise would. Well, how does that happen if municipalities are dictating to some extent where capital is spent and if banks can't necessarily foreclose on assets that are owned by, uh, by, you know, by the government. And, you know, in other words, that's a um, set of issues that also, and so you need those. Another thing that you need to have is you need to be able to move assets, you know, businesses around, not, not, just, not just cash capital and money capital, but people are a form of capital. 
How do you address the issues with businesses that may be overstaffed or making the wrong thing or making products that people stop wanting? How do you make those businesses taper themselves? How do you reduce the amount of investment in those businesses and the amount of people who are working in those businesses if you can't lay off those people and make them temporarily unemployed so they could find jobs in more productive places? Well, in developed economies, you can do that because there are safety nets. And so you need companies to provide those benefits. In order to have companies to provide those benefits, you need to capitalize insurance companies. If you capitalize an insurance company, they have to have assets to invest in, which means they have to have you know, securities and capital markets. Without the proper functioning capital markets, you get unfortunate bubbles in economies. The only thing you can buy in China, the only thing you can invest in is savings accounts or real estate. Guess what? You're going to get bubbles in the real estate market. There's nothing else to invest in. So you have to have, you have to let China, and one of the ironies is that very often it's easier for foreigners to invest in the equities of Chinese companies than it is for Chinese citizens to invest in their own growth. That has to change. So for a variety of reasons, reform is needed in the, um, in the capital markets and the economy as a predicate to other kinds of reforms. The United States has become a really critical trading partner, and it's become more two-way. The United States exports have gone to China rapidly, and, and some industries have really taken advantage of that. Yet we're still having a big debate in this country around trade. And the president has been pushing for enhanced trade promotion authority. He's been pushing a, a, a trade agreement that would tie together the, some of our Pacific trading partners. Why is that so critical for us now to move forward on trade? Look, I think there are a lot of issues. Certainly, there's a national debate on trade because in the short term, it could lead to a kind of um, leads to disruption. But in the long term, if you don't have free trade, you're not creating the wealth that you have. And if you're not creating the wealth, there's no point arguing about how you distribute the wealth. Um, U.S. is a great beneficiary of trade. It's a big, great beneficiary of open markets. And I'll tell you one thing. We happen to have the reserve currency of the world. And we're a great beneficiary that everybody stores their wealth. A great deal of you know, nations store their wealth in the form of dollar assets. It not only makes it easier for us to operate. The fact that a lot of commerce gets conducted in English is very easy if you speak English. The fact that trade is conducted in dollars is very easy if you're dollar-based. Uh, but it also serves to help finance our activity. Lots of people around the world are lending money to the United States at very, very low interest rates that can be deployed in our own economy and is deployed in our own economy. And that's because of the reserve economy, because we're a very open economy. We stand for openness. We stand for, for free trade, free flow of investments. And if we started to be on the other side, we do that at our peril. We would imperil a lot of the advantages we now have by being regarded as one of the most open economies. Now, with trade comes the ability of countries to pursue their relative advantage. And if everybody pursues their relative advantage, everybody who's involved in that system is enriched. We still have to make sure that the benefits are distributed, but we have to separate that out. Can you imagine making a neighborhood if, you know, if instead of we were just trying to protect the interests of the United States, what if we were trying to protect your neighborhood and you couldn't trade or transact with other neighborhoods? There are some skills in your neighborhood, some products that people want, but many more products and services that wouldn't be generated and you'd have inferior products or no products and forego services that would otherwise be available. Trade 
has really benefited the economy by, for example, keeping the inflation rate in the United States lower than it otherwise would be because we are able to buy cheaper goods and services from the outside that are simple services, whereas more complex goods higher up on the uh, technology curve that we make in this country are bought by people outside the country. The benefits are a bit diffuse always, and, and the uh, the disruption that trade brings is always quite tangible and immediate, as well, you said, which has always been the challenge, anytime there's selling any, it politically. Anytime there's any change whatsoever, the short-term consequences of a disruption are more palpable than the long-term benefits, and you have to sell them. And, you know, to some extent, you know the slogan, if you're explaining, you're losing. It's a tough, it's a tough thing in a kind of 140-character kind of world or, or a 30-second news clip kind of a world. But I'll give you an analogy. People are trying to decide whether trade is good or bad. People are trying to decide whether a lower cost of energy is good or bad. You think to yourself, well, how could a lower cost of energy be bad? To the extent you're paying more for your gasoline out of a fixed income that you have, it must leave less money for other things. How could that be a good thing? Well, a higher cost of energy leads to investment in trying to source more energy, and that investment creates demand for capital goods used in the exploration for energy, which creates some job in the near term. So in the near term, you take that away by having energy more plentiful at a lower cost, and you say, well, in the short term, there's less investment. We're going to lose jobs in the short term. True. But in the long term, it makes everybody wealthier and able to spend those money on things that are much more productive and go further into improving people's lives. Yeah. The political debate is starting in the United States, seems to be starting very early, uh, earlier and earlier. Without getting into candidates and, and who's running, you've talked a lot about the underlying strengths of the United States economy. You've talked about them here today. What should the candidates be focused on? Um, we'll get a lot of political debate, but what are the substantive issues around the economy that should be the focus of a debate going forward here in the United States? Uh, I think they're on? focusing on a lot of issues. My complaint is that there are things that are being focused on that are deficiencies in the way we're operating today that should be embraced by both sides and might be embraced on both sides if one side or another wasn't trying to get advantage at the other's expense. So if somebody is in power... If you allow them to make some sort of progress, you may be conceding some advantage to the party in power. So sometimes people can become more obstinate and not go along with something that would be an attractive thing to do simply because you don't want to give somebody a victory. That's the kind of politics that I think is not useful. Um, but the issues themselves, you know, are out in front. Let me give you some things that I think that are... There's some issues around them, but on the whole... They should be sorted out and we should move ahead of them. We should have an energy policy in this country. Who could say we shouldn't have an energy policy? We're in a situation where we're blessed with resources that half a generation ago thought would never be the case. Energy, energy sufficiency in North America, probably maybe even energy sufficiency within the United States. Do we have the right policies in place to take advantage of it? You know, and given the reality of that situation, do we have the right policies that flow from that decision, being able to export oil that we can't do now, uh, which would help investment in this country in more oil if, you can, if U.S. oil could leave, the, uh, could leave the United States? Investment in infrastructure. Is there really a debate about whether we should invest in our infrastructure? Well, there is, but... Should there be a debate be and how do you want to do it? And if somebody wants to invest 
if, if people have different priorities, isn't there some overlap in people's priorities such that we can get going on some things that are significant, fix our bridges, fix our roadways, fix our airports? And if you did that, wouldn't it be the kind of economic stimulus that other people would want to see? Yeah, one of the tougher things that's bedeviled a lot of policymakers and economists as well is inequality. You've talked a lot about the need to address this. Um, you hear Republican candidates talking about the right to rise, the opportunity society. You hear um, some Democratic candidates obviously talking on, on the need to better distribute income. What are the, some of the things that we could be doing as a country to address that issue more seriously? Well, there's always an issue. Everybody wants to give everybody the equivalent opportunity. And there's always a debate where do you want to give everybody the same opportunity at the starting line and let people run the race at their own pace and come out wherever they come out? Or do you want to, do you want to adjust the uh, outcomes, you know, where people are relative to the finish line and so not have people have such divergent fortunes regardless of where they started? And so that's, a, you know, that's kind of a debate that comes out. I would say you certainly want to give people equivalence of opportunity, but how do you do that when people have come from different families, different economic backgrounds, different sociologies? And so you'll never quite achieve that. And so you have to kind of weigh, you know, and you can't afford to have widely disparate opportunities because you'll have some, you know, you won't necessarily have the most stable world. That's why you have to have safety nets. You can't, you can't have a winner take all outcome. So you have to raise the level of the, uh, of a safety net. And so you have to the society has to accomplish both of these things, and there's a tension, and people will be, you know, on opposite sides of this, but it's a band. I don't think anybody should be on any, you know, any part of that extreme. Reflecting on your career, you've been at the firm, what, more than 30 years now? Yep. Uh, Operated in a lot of different environments. The firm's grown enormously in that period. What are, the, what are the biggest management lessons you've learned here now that you're running the firm every day? Well... I think, if anything, is that um, I've learned that the ability to navigate this unpredictable world, this hard-to-predict world, is less a function of being good at predicting outcomes and where things are going and more a function of being a great contingency planner and thinking of all the things and looking around corners and preparing for things that might happen without too much confidence in the course that you think will happen because we're surprised all the time. And I think if you're a very good contingency planner, when the contingency does occur, you can respond so quickly that maybe you will think you did anticipate it and you did foresee it. But in fact, you're just getting off the mark very quickly. when Because you, you were thinking of the low probability events. Because you were worried about and planning for what you think are low, low probability events that are highly consequential. And I, I'm telling you, if there's one lesson that I think of is just worrying about scenarios. And I will tell you, given enough time, it's not that anything can happen. It's that everything will happen. Lloyd, summer's approaching. Uh, we won't exactly shut down this summer at Goldman Sachs, but you might have a little bit more time to read. What are you reading now and what are you hoping to read this summer? Oh, gosh, I have a long list that, and, you know, and the thing I have to confess is that some of my summer reading list books are on my list for more than one summer. 
because I, my, my ambitions and my, you know, my aspirations are always bigger than my capacity. So, you know, I read a lot of the history. I'm looking forward to reading the new book on the Wright brothers. I've just read a book on, uh, uh, by Larson, the, this, on the sinking of the Lusitania, which I thought I knew everything about, but he's a writer who makes these narrow events very, uh, you know, gives a lot of texture to them and makes them feel very vivid. And so, you know, I enjoyed that book. I've been reading a book by Daniel Borston, The Discoverers, for about 18 years now. <laughs> and I carry it around and I read about uh, 100 pages at the top, but it's, uh, but it's a very thick book and I learn a lot from it. And um, I'll probably be reading it for another 18 years. 18 years yeah. And then I'll move on to his next volume called The Creators, <laughs> which will take me another 30 years to read. Um, thank you very much, Lloyd. It was a real pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast was recorded on May 12, 2015. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast is not financial research, nor a product of Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.